The truth about that, the fishing thing is that my boys are the ones that want me off the team so they have a better chance of winning. If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, at verse 15. And if you have your notes there and you see the title of the message is The Preeminent Jesus. And uh, if, you'll, if you're interested, there's some blanks there for you to fill in as we go along that may help kind of cement this in your mind. I know that that helps me. But we're in Colossians chapter 1, verses, we're going to read verses 15 through 23 today. When you think about the word preeminence, I don't know if it's a word that you use regularly. It's not typically found in my vocabulary on a regular basis. I, I looked the word up because the word occurs in this passage. And in the English, it means surpassing all others or very distinguished in some way. And so I, when I think about preeminent, I, I think of maybe royalty, of, of, uh, of, of someone who just has this, this regality about them, this position of prestige that they're set above others. Uh, in the realm of sports, my mind gravitates towards people who have players, who have athletes, who have dominated their particular sports. You know, there was, there was a time uh, in, in the NHL, apparently they, that's a sport that's still played, I, I don't hear much about it, but in hockey, where Wayne Gretzky was above all of his peers, there was nobody like the great Wayne Gretzky, or in basketball, Michael Jordan. Uh, during his playing days. There was a time in golf when nobody could beat Tiger Woods. Um, and, and so many others have dominated their sport. They were preeminent. They were above all others. Well, there's really only one person that that, that title should apply to. All these others are on a, a very lower level or in one particular area of life. But the one to whom it applies to over all the world, over, over all of life, over all of time is Jesus Christ. And this passage here in Colossians 1 explains that he is preeminent over all. And it's a, it's a beautiful and a majestic passage. Let's read it together. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So as we think about Jesus being preeminent, I just want to give you a little backdrop of why Paul inserted this, uh, this doctrinal treatise here in Colossians 1. Many, uh, many scholars believe that um, verses uh, 15 through 20 is, a, is an ancient Christian hymn. We don't really know if that's true or not, but it's, uh, it's certainly very um, 
very poetic, whether Paul was the original author or whether he borrowed it for, from, from the, the church in that day to create a hymn. We don't really know, but it's a very poetic portion of Scripture, uh, one of the more poetic portions of any of Paul's writings. And he sets aside Jesus Christ as supreme over all because here's, the, here's one of the problems that was going on in Colossae is that some of these false teachers were, were trying to point to other, other teachings, other deities as having a very significant, uh, a lot of importance in the culture. And, is, it is, and, and, and because of the, the Roman, Roman, Roman influence of that day, there would have been all kinds of temptations to gravitate towards other gods, other deities, other, other places of worship. And Paul wanted to set Jesus Christ as far above any type of religion, any type of philosophy, any other teaching that might creep in in those days. He wanted to say, hey, Jesus Christ is above and beyond greater than all of these things. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that the proper place that Jesus should have in their theology and beliefs. And so as we look at these verses, I have an outline there in, in, uh, in your notes. That first of all, Jesus is preeminent as God. As Paul is, is setting aside uh, uh, God or uh, Jesus' divinity, he makes it very clear and he wants, he wants no question in their mind that Jesus Christ is God. And there, is, there should be, in our, in our mind, as we read Scripture, there should be no question. This is, this is constantly assaulted. It has been since the days that Jesus walked this earth, and it continues to be until this day. There will be all kinds of people that try to teach that Jesus was just a man. He was just a good teacher. Or maybe even that he didn't even exist, that he was just a, 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 a work of historical fiction. Now, there's fewer and fewer uh, liberal scholars that try to prove that today because there's just so much evidence that Jesus walked the earth. So they'll say, okay, he walked the earth, but he was, he was just a man. And Paul is writing here to the Colossians to correct any notion that he was simply just flesh and blood. Truly, he was a man. He felt that pain upon the cross. He had emotions and feelings. He, He was a human being, but he was also fully God. Now, that's beyond my mind's comprehension. Theologians use a phrase called the hypostatic union to describe the mixture that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Uh, For us, we don't need to remember the fancy term. We just need to remember the theology behind it and hold fast to it. Scripture teaches he was a man. Scripture teaches he was God, is God. And we need to to wholeheartedly grab onto that. And and here's why. Um, Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19, he says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That phrase in verse 15, he is the image of God. Uh, It might be a little bit misleading here in our English language. For example, if we see an image, if I'm reading the newspaper newspaper, and uh, I see an image of Miguel Cabrera uh, swinging at a fastball, um, I I recognize that that's not actually Miguel Cabrera there. I recognize that that's, that's a picture captured and placed in newsprint. It's not really him inside. It's a representation well, that's not what Paul is saying here about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just represent God. The, the word that's used here that we translate image means that uh, it's the same as something else. So Christ is the visible representation of him who is invisible. And if you read the Gospel of John chapter 1, especially the first 14 verses or so, that's exactly John's point, is that Jesus came to earth to give us a visible representation 
of what until then was simply uh, unknown and unseen. The Israelites had seen visible representations of God. For example, the pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt. Uh, they had seen the, 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 just the utter terror on Mount Sinai. Isaiah had seen a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. But never before had God came and walked among mankind. And so when we say that Jesus is the image of God, he's the, he's the visible representation of God. And how gracious of God to do that. He could, have, he could have left us throughout all of eternity with just this idea that there is, there is a being up in heaven and we need to believe that he's there. He could have done that. But he sent his son Jesus Christ to, to have God take on flesh and walk among us so that we could see the visible representation of God, a, a true act of God's grace. But as Paul is proving to the Colossians that Jesus is preeminent as God, he, he, he tells us a couple things that, that kind of just verify or add validity to the fact that, that he truly is who he claimed to be. The first one is that he created all things. Verse 15 and 16 tell us, tell us that by him all things were created. And I just, um, in verse 16 there, that phrase, by him all things were created. When I, somehow I missed that growing up. I went to church all, all of my growing up years. It wasn't until I was in Bible college that I heard someone, one of my professors teach that Jesus created the world. Now I thought about God the Father being involved in creation. But I didn't really, for whatever reason, maybe I was doodling on my bulletin too, too much. Uh, maybe I was napping in church and I just didn't pick it up. Or maybe I'm just that slow. But it just never dawned on me that Jesus Christ was involved in creation. The, the Bible actually teaches that the whole Trinity was involved in creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Jesus did not, Jesus wasn't like on the bench for all of eternity until Bethlehem. He wasn't riding the pine he wasn't, he wasn't playing second fiddle to God the Father. But Jesus has been actively involved in this earth since the very forming of it. That's pretty amazing. And it wasn't just that God, you know, Jesus wasn't like, come on, Father, let me create something. You're getting all the cool stuff. And God's like, all right, fine. You get the ragweed and the mosquitoes. Stop bugging me. And just, no, it says, it says by him, all things were created. All things. And, and that is significant then when you think about the life of Jesus when he came here on earth. That the very cross that he hung upon, it was his hands who formed that. He's the one that created that tree. He's the one that gave, gave the very breath to the ones who were using it to scream obscenities at him. And when you think about him being creator of all things, it, it gives his death just a little bit sharper picture. And we see a, a greater, an even greater love displayed there. That all of those beings that were involved in hanging him upon the cross were formed by him. It says he is, he tells us he is preeminent as God because he created all things. But this passage goes on further. And it says that not only that he created all things, but that he is before all things. He is before all things. Jesus 
has existed forever in eternity past. And the beginning of verse 17 tells us just that. And He is before all things. He's before all things. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning before anything. Jesus was not created. The, the, uh, very early on in church history, there was a group of false teachers, a, a group that rose up that began teaching that uh, Jesus was a created being. They were the Arians. Uh, Modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses would uh, still teach that same theology. And they, they would get that from uh, verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. They take that verse out of context. It's not what that verse is saying at all. It doesn't, it's not saying that he was the first one created by God. He's not, uh, as, as some cults would teach, he's not Michael the archangel or anything like that. That phrase, firstborn of all creation, just signifies his place of preeminence. He is above and beyond. It's, it's, when you read it in the context, it fits perfectly. It slides right in there that he's above and, above and greater than all. It's not teaching that he, he was created because if you read it in context, it says he created all things. It can't mean that. Jesus has always, always been and always will be. And that little bit of theology that God has existed from eternity past, I mean, my mind can't work outside of time. I am, I am completely wrapped up in, in time. My wife and I, it seems like almost every night we're looking at the calendars. What's going on this week? Who has ball games where? Where, where are we heading here? Where's, you know, when's this trip taking place? It's just We live and die by the calendars, and I think we Americans are probably worse than about any culture in the world by that. I can't think outside of time. The Bible says that God existed even before time was created, even before earth. I mean, any, 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 we don't have any point of reference for eternity past. Like when, when God hung the, the stars in the sky and, and called darkness and light, separated them and, and began to form the earth and mankind and plants and animals, this right here, that's, that's when time began. But the Bible says God even existed before that, throughout all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not have a beginning. And he wanted the Colossians to know that. He wanted, he wanted, him to know, he wanted them to know that Jesus was above and beyond and greater than, than any teaching that these false teachers were going to bring their way. And part of the reason was because he was before all things. And I don't know about you, but that just gives me tremendous comfort. And some of you have been and lived a life where you've had not been able to count on people. You've had people come in and out of your life. Maybe it was a divorce early on. Maybe it was a death when you were still young. Maybe it was people who have let you down, people that were the closest to you, people you should have been able to count on. And you've maybe lived your life not really able to trust people, not really able to count on people. And you've kind of withdrawn and said, well, I, I know one person I can count on, that's me. And I'm going to get through life relying on me. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to know that there is actually someone who has been there, even before you were around. And he always will be there. He always will be able to be counted on. Jesus Christ, the one who has existed, he was before all things, will always be there. 
God is a God that you can rely upon. He is a God that you can go to at 3 a.m. and you have his ear. He is never too busy. He is never, he never forgets an appointment. He never, never misses a chance to be with you. And I just want you to be confident today that, that, that your Savior, Jesus Christ, he has always, always, always been. And he always, always will be. And all these other religions of the world, listen, they can trace their founders back to a point of origin. Um, whether it's Buddha, whether it's, um, na- you name it, any kind of, any, any Muhammad, any of these, these religious founders, they, they were born. They were created. They had a, they had a mom and a dad. And, and, and even, even, more, even worse is that they had an ending. <laughs> they had a day where, where they breathed their last and they were no more. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, when that happened to him, three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is preeminent because he is before all things and he always will be. And then thirdly, under that idea that Jesus is God, is that, uh, let her see, he sustains all things. Verse, the last part of verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. All things. Jesus is the glue that binds this universe together. It's pretty awesome that, that Jesus always has and always will be holding things together. So not, not only has he been around forever and will be forever, but he is always, day in and day out, sustaining everything. The sun that you saw come up this morning, Jesus. The fact that you, bro- you were breathing when you woke up this morning, Jesus. Everybody hold their hands up and go like this. Your fingers move, yep, Jesus. He is holding everything together. The reason that the the world does not completely fall off the rails and completely come crashing down. I mean, do you ever think about that as a kid? Like, I know that the earth is just kind of out there. And what if it just started dropping? Like, I don't like anything much faster than the elevator going down. You know those, you know those, those things? I think Cedar Point has, a lot of the amusement parks have those things that will take you up there and then they just drop you fast. Whether it's you're out in the open or whether you're in an enclosed container. I just look at people doing that and I... It makes me sick, and I think, why would, why would healthy, intelligent people put themselves through that? I, I, I used to think about that as a kid. Like, what if the earth just did that? I'm just like, I've got to hold on to something secure here, just in case, you know. I read, I read this um, uh, recently that our earth is, is, and I'm not a scientist at all, so I've got I've to completely borrow from other people on this stuff. Um, that our, our earth is designed just perfectly and just right. Um, it's, it's perfectly designed for life, for example. It's the perfect size of atmosphere we need. It's, the, it's size and, and corresponding gravity hold a thin but not too thin layer of gases to protect us and allow us to breathe. When astronaut John Glenn returned to space, one of the things that struck him was how thin and fragile our atmosphere is, only 50 miles above the earth. If our planet were smaller, it couldn't support an atmosphere like on Mercury. If it were larger, like Jupiter, the atmosphere would contain free hydrogen, which is poisonous for us. The Earth is the only planet we know of that contains an atmosphere that can support human, animal, and plant life. 
The earth is the perfect distance from the sun and the other planets in our solar system. If, we'd clo- if we're closer to the sun, and this is one scientific fact every kid knows, right? We'd burn up. If we were further away, we'd freeze. The, earth is, the earth's orbit is nearly circular. This slightly elliptical shape means that we enjoy a quite narrow range of temperatures. Now, this was written before this past winter. Um, <laughs> the speed of the Earth's rotation on its axis, completing one turn every 24 hours, means that the sun warms the planet evenly. Again, there's maybe some scientific evidence to de- debate that, but uh, co- compare our world to the moon, where there, is an incredible, there are incredible temperature variations because it lacks sufficient atmosphere or water to retain or deflect the sun's energy. And speaking of the moon... It's important that there is only one moon and not two, three, or none. And it's just the right size and distance from us. The moon's gravity impacts the movement of ocean currents, keeping the water from becoming stagnant. And the fact that everything on this earth and on this planet is just right for us and for living conditions is evidence that it was created by an all-loving God. And that is Jesus Christ who sustains that day in and day out. He holds it all together Verse 17 tells us. Now, we like to think that we're the ones that hold it together. And mankind has done their best, especially over the last few hundred years, to try to live life without God. We've tried through scientific advancements and just through um, technology and our own intellect to say we can make it on our own. We're fine. We've got this. And, and, And... By God's grace, we've had some amazing accomplishments. I mean, you think about the kinds of strides. I mean, those of you who um, maybe are, uh, you know, can remember back a little ways. You'll remember a time when there wasn't such a thing as a cell phone. And now I can pull it out of my pocket and I can call almost anybody in the world. I have missionary friends in China and I could call them and talk. I'd, I'd be waking them up right now, but I could call and talk to them. Um, I can Skype with my family out in California. I could see their face right here on stage, and they could see mine. It's whether they want to do that this early in the morning or not, I don't know. But we've, we've made major medical advances. I mean, babies born now at 21 or 22 weeks or 22 months have a pretty good chance of survival. Whereas 22 months, boy, that would be miserable. <laughs> I was right the first time. If you asked my wife, she would swear she was pregnant with our first one for 22 months. (laughs) Babies born at 21 or 22 weeks now, hospitals will tell you that they have a a good chance of survival. It wasn't just uh, 100 100 or so years ago that the infant infant mortality rate was like almost 1 in 10. I mean, if if you were going to have a dozen kids, which wasn't all that uncommon, you would just expect, I hope this doesn't sound callous, but you would just expect that, that one of them was going to die in infancy. I mean, that's just the, that was the way life was. And now, with technology, we've been able to just completely change infant mortality rates. We, um, we, we, can, we can give people artificial organs. Um, it wasn't all that long ago. It would take anywhere from 50 to 150 days if you wanted to make uh, the trip to England. 50 to 150 days, depending on weather and currents and all that kind of stuff. Nowadays, you can, you can fly from JFK to London in about seven hours. I mean, the, the things that we have been able to do through science and technology are incredible. And we, if we're not careful, can start to buy into that philosophy where like, you know, I've, I've, I can hold things together all right. 
I've got money, I've got cars, I've got my family's all right, everything's okay. I'm doing a pretty good job here. And we need to be careful lest we slip into that thinking and, and, and begin to think that we're God, that we're the ones making things work. All those technology advancements, all of that stuff, that's by God's grace. God, God created us with minds to be able to do that. God gave us certain freedoms and liberties here in this, this country so that we can set aside people that aren't busy fighting wars constantly like many, many nations around the world. And, and they, can, they can work on technology. They can work in advancing the medical field. God's, God's been so gracious to us. And we're the ones that try to heap all the credit on ourselves. And we need to remember that the credit all goes to God. Jesus Christ is sustaining all things. And I just want to remind you too that no matter what's happening in your life, that God is sustaining you. That God is holding you together. No matter how difficult things get, Jesus has not lost control. He's still sustaining this world. He's sustaining you and he's sustaining me. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's why you and I are doing anything at all this morning. Because Jesus Christ is upholding it and making it happen. Secondly, and we're just going to hit these last two briefly, he is preeminent in the church. Verse 18 tells us that he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the founder of the church, and as such, he is, he is head over it. It belongs to him. And when we think about the church, I just want to make two uh, kind of divide up into two categories. When, when the New Testament writers write about, use the word church, they're either, either typically talking about the local church, which would be like Brown Corners or the, the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, the, the churches in Rome. Um, they're talking about the local church or the universal church. The universal church is, is the, the whole group of Christians that have existed throughout all eternity. And so sometimes the Bible refers to them as the, as, as the, the body of Christ, the church. So you have the local church, which is any number of churches meeting around the world this morning. And then you have the universal church. It, it comprises all believers of all time throughout all ages. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Jesus Christ is the head of the whole church, the, the body of Christ. Um, I recently, well, it's been a couple of years ago, I read a book called Who Stole My Church? And the, it, was a, it was a work of fiction, but the idea was that he was, he was trying to explain how, how so often we in church can get so entrenched in our ways and our, our, our favorite pastimes, our favorite traditions. And, and when, when things need to change, we're hard to let, it's, it's difficult for us to let go. And he got the title of the book from, uh, he was a pastor trying to work with, with someone about changing, I think maybe it was changing the music or something like that. And, and the individual just did not want to let go of the old way that they were doing music. And it was, it was just turned into a big battle. And, and, and this individual stood up during a meeting and, and she said, who stole my church? What has happened here? Things are not the way that I liked them to be. They're not the way they used to be. And that, that phrase, who stole my church, can, can really reflect some bad theology that we can allow to sneak into our life. That we can begin to think that this is our gig. That this is the, the, the programs and the, the stuff. It's for me and it's about my preferences and tastes. And we need to step back sometimes and remember this is about bringing glory to God. This is Jesus Christ's church. And all things that we do here should be run through a grid where we think, is this going to glorify Jesus Christ? Is this going to bring honor to his name? 
because this is his church. So Jesus is preeminent over the church. And then thirdly, Jesus is preeminent in our salvation. Jesus is preeminent in our salvation. And those verses 20 through 23 tell us that that he was involved, more than involved, he was the one that took the the initiative. Because the end of verse 20 says that, um, tells us the the awful truth that, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21 says, you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That describes us as Christians. And there, we, we saw it a little bit earlier here in this chapter, and he comes back to it. This describes us uh, as believers before we became believers, that you were alienated, you were hostile towards God, that you had, you had a, a wall between. You wanted nothing to do with God. You had your back to him. You were doing your own thing, living your own way. And the Bible says that God says he reconciled us. It says in verse 21, you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled you in his body, verse 22, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. The Bible says that there was a reconciliation that took place. And, and the idea of, of reconciliation is, is just bringing peace where there was once enmity in a relationship. The Bible says that we are alienated and hostile in our minds, and, and God reconciled us to himself. He he took care of the problem. And, you know, I think we all love it, whether it's in real life or if we're watching a movie, when there are, are two sides that are completely at odds, and maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's a war that's going on, and it's just, it always brings a happy ending. It warms our heart when we see those sides come together. When the issues, there, there's reconciliation that takes place. My, my own family has some stuff going on um, over the last couple of weeks. And, and just as we're trying to talk to them and, and work through some of these things, it's, it's frustrating. And I would just love to see them, see my relatives, just put aside their differences, be willing to forgive one another and reconcile. How wonderful it would make family reunions and family gatherings to have everybody together getting along. We love to see that reconciliation. And I recognize in this world of sin we can, we can, of course, pray for it. We can work toward it, but it, it doesn't always happen. But where it has happened once for all is between the Christian and God. And those walls of partition that separated us, namely our sin and guilt, were taken, up, taken on by Jesus Christ. The price has been paid, and now reconciliation has taken place so that we are part of God's family now, if you've trusted in Christ. Reconciliation is a great thing, but there's also a, a little um, exhortation that, that he, he tucks down in here in verse 23. Um, he had said in 22 that he says, we'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister he just reminds us with that, that word if, that our salvation, it is not contingent upon our works. We're saved apart from good works. But he says that if you, are, if, you, if you remain steadfast, if you continue in your salvation, you demonstrate the reality of the change that's taken place on the inside. We're not, we don't earn our salvation through works. But those good works demonstrate that there's, there truly has been a change. We talked about that a little bit last week. I could say that I collect baseball cards, but if I don't have anything to show for it, 
I'm not much of a collector. And the same is true with, our, with regards to our salvation. If we, can, we claim to be a Christian, yet we have nothing to show for it. It's kind of an empty claim, Paul says. He says, if you continue stable and steadfast, if you, if you cling to the hope of the gospel that you once believed, he says, God is going to present you holy and without blame before his son. What a great promise. My salvation is not dependent upon me, but as God changes me from the inside through the washing of regeneration, like Titus talks about, and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and there's fruit that comes out there that's going to evidence the fact that that, that truly has been a genuine heart change. And just by way of closing and application, I just want to put up just a a couple of thoughts here uh, that we can use to tie this into our life. First of all, doxology begins with theology. Doxology is the idea of just praise and worship. But we need to have right theology as we get ready to enter into worship. And what I mean by that is we need to think rightly about Jesus Christ if we're going to worship him. That means spending time in his word, spending time understanding who he is, who it is, the God that we're worshiping. For example, if, if we don't have this passage in, 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 in Colossians 1 down, verses 15 and 16, that talk about Jesus Christ being God, if we're wishy-washy on that, that's going to affect our worship of him. Uh, we're not going to be quite as motivated to worship someone that we don't think is God. And so our, our, our praise, our worship, our doxology should begin with right theology. should begin with right theology, a proper understanding of who God is. Secondly, we need to remember who's in charge. The Bible says that he sustains all things like we read here. And we just need to remember that. That he is the one that is making everything happen. If my business is going well, if my family life is going well, if the relationships are going well, if my finances are doing well, it is because of God's grace. And, and we need to remember it in re- regards to the church as well. It can be easy to get infect, maybe uh, offended if, if, if the church isn't doing, doing a program the way we want it done or if, or if this event's not happening like, like we'd really like it to be uh, happening. We need to remember, wait a minute, this is, this is for God and His glory. It's not about me and my comfort and my glory. And then thirdly, by way of application, we need to remember to not shift from the hope of the gospel. And that's the, the kind of the little warning, the exhortation that Paul uh, throws at us um, in verse 23 as he ends this, this little section. It reminds us that, that we need to hold closely. And that's, that's one of the, the fears that he had for the Colossian Christians. He was all excited about them at the beginning of chapter 1. He had high hopes for them. He was, he was cheering them on. But he said, just, just don't let go of the hope you have. Don't stop clinging on to Jesus Christ because those other teachers were in danger of bringing other gods into play, other philosophies into play. And, and, and Paul says, don't budge, man. Don't give ground. Don't, don't let go of this one. Listen, there are things in our, in our Christian faith, and we all know this, but there are things that, uh, that, are, that are maybe gray areas or, or, or points in the scripture that are not real clear. And so we can debate those. And some of those things, it's okay to be, to have different opinions on. Maybe when you're talking about end times and that kind of stuff, 
or uh, you know that just just spent a few days down in Huntington talking about some of our, our distinctives as a denomination, and and we we allow. We allow a certain range of beliefs. Maybe it's in the mode of baptism. Maybe it's how often you want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Those kinds of things. But there are certain things that we can't budge on. There are certain truths that, that if you believe them, then the Bible says, or if you don't believe them, then the Bible says that you've moved from the hope of the gospel. You've shifted. And those things are right here in this passage, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is creator and sustainer of all things, and that salvation can be found only through him. And those are the things that we can't, we can't budge on. We can't allow room for, for disagreement or, or other opinions. The Bible is crystal clear on it, and we need to stand firm on these important truths. So this morning, as we think about Jesus Christ, he is preeminent over all. He is above and greater than all things. He, has, he is preeminent as, as God because he has created and he sustains everything. He is preeminent over the church and he is preeminent in our salvation. We are here today because of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you, I hope that you just cling on to that. I hope that you hold on to that. And that 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 truth, that that knowledge, that understanding is reflected in, in your worship and in your praise this week. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so blessed as we gather together today that we know that we have a God in heaven who not only has created all things, but sustains all things. And... It is a tremendous comfort as we reflect upon the deity of Jesus Christ to know that as, as he walked this earth, that he was still in complete control, even as, even as he was being led away to the cross. You tell us in Acts 4 that that was all part of your definite plan, all part of your foreknowledge, that you were you had brought your son into this world to, to go to the cross for us. And I'm so thankful this morning that sustaining all things isn't up to me. Getting all things figured out, making all things work, it's not up to us. You are the one who rules. You are the one who reigns. God, may we have that very clear in our mind and in our thinking as we, as we go out this week. You remember it's not on our shoulders to sustain life, to sustain and, and, and make relationships and everything happen. And it's because of Jesus Christ that, that we have salvation this morning. It's because of Jesus Christ that we're free. It's because of Jesus Christ that we have hope today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.